Well, let's jump into week number four of our series on heaven. I want to encourage you, if you have not uh, listened to the first three weeks, go online, listen to it, pick up a copy of the Heaven booklet. There's still some of these available in the kids' building and I think different places on campus. If you see one of them, it's yours. Just pick it up, take it. It's for you. I want to encourage you to read through that. Uh, invite you to pull out your message notes right now. I want to welcome those of you sitting in the cafe today, joining us over there. Uh, pull out your message notes. There's some scripture, some fill-in-the-blank to follow along with. Uh, I ran across this I wanted to share with you to begin the message today. Uh, It says there was a couple that went up north that decided, or a couple that lived up north that decided to go to Florida for a vacation during a very cold winter. They were going to stay at the hotel they honeymooned in over 20 years earlier. They had very busy work schedules and they couldn't leave at the same time. The husband flew down Thursday and then his wife would join him the following day. When he arrived, he checked in and he went and got everything ready and he decided to email his wife to let her know he made it and he was safe and he was waiting for her. As he sent the email, he misspelled his wife's name and accidentally sent it to the wrong woman. The woman who received the email had just returned home from from her husband's funeral He was a pastor, and he passed away suddenly from a heart attack. After reading the message, she screamed and fainted. Her son ran into the room to see the computer screen. Here's the email. To my loving wife, subject, I've arrived. I know you must be surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now, and they let you send emails to your loved ones. I just arrived and got checked in. Everything is all set for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is easier than mine. P.S. It is sure hot down here. (laughs) I thought that tied into the message somehow today. In your message notes, point number one, we'll jump right into it. What will the new earth be like? We, we, we talked about this two weeks ago, and I want to kind of continue on that theme. And I want to talk a little bit about the new earth so that you can begin to imagine what it's going to be like for all of eternity. The, the, the way I illustrate it is, you know, when you're going on a vacation to somewhere that you've never been before... Part of the preparation process is planning and research and dreaming and imagining. And even before you get there, you can almost taste it. You can almost feel it. You can almost see it because you really dreamed about it. That's the goal of this series is to let you have kind of an imagination for what heaven's going to be like, the new earth, as the Bible calls it. And the best way for me to describe the new earth to you today is if you take the best parts of the earth that we know now, the the earth that we have today, you you take the best parts of it, you take Niagara Falls, you take uh, the Grand Canyon, the beauty, the, the islands of the Bahamas, you take all of the most amazing and wonderful parts of our earth today, it's just a shadow of what the new earth is going to be like. It's just a veiled glimpse of how beautiful and how incredible the new earth is going to be when God fully restores, fully regenerates, fully redeems this planet back to the Garden of Eden-like state that he created it to be. 
What I want to do is I want to read to you two passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to pull out some thoughts about the new earth for you. Revelations 22, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the angel showed me a river a river in the new earth with the water of life clear as crystal. Now, we just got back from Israel. And one of the things that our guide told us in every single ancient city that we went to, the number one thing they look for is a water source. If you don't have a water source, you don't build a city. And in a very arid, dry place, water was priority. So this, this makes a lot of sense to the original hearers. We don't, you know, we don't understand the importance of water as much today because we, we, we kind of are spoiled with the access we have to water, but for this time period, water was huge significance. A river with water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. Now, what type of places have main streets? Cities. Cities have main streets. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. What is month? Month is a measurement of time. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations, plural. There's going to be nations on the new earth. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him. Ezekiel 47, 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown in fall. You know, one of the things that's going to be my favorite part of the new earth is I love fruit, but what I don't like is rotten or spoiled or bruised fruit. I mean, I like fresh fruit that is just perfect. In the new earth, there'll never be rotten fruit. There'll never be spoiled fruit. There'll never be bruised fruit. Fruit is going to taste better than you've ever possibly imagined. And there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. So let me go through it just to pull out a couple things from these passages of Scripture. In your notes and those bullet points, the first one we notice about the new earth is time. There's time on the new earth. Each month, month is a measurement of time. The new earth is not going to be an endless eternity without meaning. It's going to be an endless eternity with meaning. There's going to be segments of time on the new earth. Uh, Next thing we see out of this is food. We talked about it a little bit two weeks ago. There's food. It's quite possible that you've never tasted your favorite food yet. Because if you can imagine what it's like to be in your glorified body, fully redeemed, fully restored, having fully redeemed taste buds... Eating food that's not under the curse of sin, but that's, that, that's being watered by the tree of life, it's quite possible you've never even tasted your favorite food. Or if you have, you've never tasted what it's going to be like. The next thing we notice about these passages is there's cities and nations. There's a main street. There's, there's nations. There's cities and nations on the new earth. And it makes a lot of sense because it says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, what do little K kings and little L lords do? They rule nations. There's going to be nations on the new earth. And, and then another thing we see out of this, the, these passages is geography. It talks about a river. Other places talk about mountains. There's going to be geography on the new earth. And why does God do this? Because he wants to give us something we can imagine. See, one of the worst things that happen in the body of Christ is we have some very warped, messed up ideas and views about what heaven is. 
Now, I know so many people today, I just talked to a young man that came to our early service. He has a roommate in college who, who grew up in church, and he says, well, I don't want to, you know, he's talking to him about the series going on here. He said, well, I don't want to talk about heaven. Heaven scares me. It's going to be boring. I don't want to talk about, you know, being, you know, in clouds and wearing robes. And, and it's like so sad that so many people today have these really warped views on heaven when the Bible actually says so much about what it's going to be like. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. This is also why you don't have to do everything now. So many of us, we have these bucket lists of everything we want to do before we die. You don't have to do it all before you die. You're going to have millions of years to do it. You know, imagine somebody living on earth today who was born uh, a paraplegic or crippled and, and they've lived their life in a wheelchair and they've never gotten to hike down to the base of the Grand Canyon. And you think, that is just so not fair. Well, God is a just God. God God will rectify it. He will give them a glorified body one day, strong, physical strength. They'll be able to explore the beauty of this planet, to, to hike the Grand Canyon, to explore the rainforest, to travel around this place. You don't have to do everything before you die. You're going to have plenty of years to do all the things you've always wanted to do. See, we just have these warped ideas about what heaven and the new earth is going to be like. See, one of the things that happens when we say new earth and God wants to redeem it to the Garden of Eden-like state, a lot of people have this imagination that the new earth is is God's going to take us back to a primitive existence, a caveman-like existence, but that just doesn't make any sense. Why, Why would we go back to a primitive existence without technology? The truth is technology on the new earth is going to be far superior to technology today. Why? Because our brains are going to be functioning at a higher level. We'll be using more of our brains there in our glorified body than we're using today. So technology there is going to be far superior and far more advanced than any technology we know today. Here's the problem. When I use the word technology, many people immediately have a negative reaction because you've seen all of the destruction from technology. You're thinking curse of sin. You're thinking all the evil that technology has done in the world. You've got to remember there is no sin on the new earth, which means all technology will be for the benefit of mankind, which will be good and positive. There'll be no evil use for technology there. We're not going to go back to a caveman-like existence. Let me give you another illustration to help you understand this. If somebody was born with a sickness or a disease, and they lived their life with that sickness or disease, and in their 20s, God supernaturally heals them, when God heals that person in their 20s, they don't go back to being a newborn baby. They're simply a healed 20-year-old. When God heals the earth and redeems the earth and restores the earth, he's not going to bring planet earth back to its infancy. He's going to heal it, restore it, and redeem it where it is today. Here's another thought people have about the new earth. Will we learn in heaven or will we know everything? Will we be omniscient? Well, the Bible says only one person is omniscient, that's God. We will continue to learn on the new earth. Ephesians 2 says, in the ages to come, God's going to continue to teach us his his riches and his mercy, which means we will continue to learn more and more about God living on the new earth. Talks about the new Jerusalem. We're going to get into that here right now. Number two, what will the new Jerusalem be like? Well, Well, here's the thought for you. If there's going to be a new Jerusalem then wouldn't it make sense there would also be a new North County? That if God's going to redeem Jerusalem, won't he also redeem North County? C.S. Lewis talks about this in the Chronicles of Narnia. At the end of the book, 
the, the kids go back to London, but it's a new London. It's the London they remember, but it's completely different. There's no more war. There's no more crime. There's no more pollution. It's brighter and more beautiful. And, and what C.S. Lewis says is here the journey begins. See, here's the truth about your life. Your journey really doesn't even begin until you die. Everything here on earth, everything before you die is just a test lap. All it is is practice. It's a dress rehearsal. The journey begins when you go through the doorway of death and you begin to explore the beauty and the magnificence of what it's going to be like on the new earth for all of eternity. So what is the new Jerusalem like? Let's, let's look at scripture. Revelations 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. See, again, week two, we talked about the present heaven. Where is grandma today? Well, she's with Jesus in the present heaven. It's a temporary place where the new Jerusalem is. But one day, present heaven will come down out of the sky. The new Jerusalem will merge with earth. When it touches earth, this entire planet's going to be fully restored and regenerated. Let's keep reading about this new Jerusalem. Verse 12, the city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. Next week, I'm going to show you one of the foundation stones of King Herod. They have one stone uh, on the temple foundation, 570 tons. I have no idea how they put it in place, but it makes a lot of sense why the Romans didn't destroy. They destroyed the temple, but they couldn't destroy the foundation because how do you move a 570-ton stone? And that's nothing compared to the foundation stones God's going to lay in the new Jerusalem. Verse 15, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. When he measured it, he found out it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, the length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. So get a picture of the city. This city is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles tall. If this city was in North America today, it would stretch from the border of Canada to the border of Mexico, from the coastline of California all the way to the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia. That's how big this city would be. That's 2 million square miles on the ground floor. Now, it's also not just wide and long, but it's also 1,400 miles tall. So if you take it, because people think, well, is heaven going to be overcrowded or overpopulated? Well, Well, think about it like this. If you were generous and you gave each floor 12 feet, 12 feet per floor, which is very generous for a floor, that's 600,000 floors in the New Jerusalem, each floor being 2 million square feet. How many know, or 2 million square miles? How many know, that's a big city. You're going to have plenty of room for billions and billions of people. Each person will have plenty of square miles just to themselves of room and space. And that's just one city on the new earth. I mean, it's amazing to begin to imagine and think about what God is describing this new earth is going to be like. I love the way Randy Alcorn puts it in his book, Heaven. He says, the city's open gates are a great equalizer. You know, one of the philosophies of our church is no perfect people allowed because that's the heart of God. And, it's, and it says it right here, that the gates are a great equalizer. There's no elitism in heaven. 
There's no elitism in heaven. Everyone will have access because of Christ's blood. You're not going to have access because of your goodness. You're going to have access because of Christ's blood. His death is the admission ticket to every nook and cranny of the New Jerusalem. People won't have to prove their worth or buy their way through the gates. All people will have access to the city parks, museums, restaurants, libraries, concerts, anything and everything the city has to offer. Nobody will have to peek over the fence or look longingly through the windows. It's going to be incredible to see this city built and established and that we're going to come and go from this city. Some of us are going to live there. Some of us will be ruling over different nations and kingdoms, but we get to come and go from all of eternity in this magnificent city. Here's number three. Do we have free will in heaven? And if so, can we sin? Do we have free will in heaven? And if we have free will, will we have the ability to sin? Let me answer this. Revelations 21.4 says, there will be no more death. There is no death in heaven. All these things are gone forever. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Well, if there's no death in heaven, then by default, there cannot be sin in heaven because the wage of sin is death. Well, if there's no death, there's no sin. So here's the answer to the question. Yes, you will have free will in heaven. No, you will not be able to sin. And here's the answer, because you will be given a righteous nature. You will have a righteous nature. So you'll have total free will, but you won't have the ability to sin. Let me, let me illustrate that. On earth today, I have free will. I've got free will right now. If I want to pick up this yellow cup, I can pick up the yellow cup. I just exercise my free will to pick up this cup. I've got free will. But even with my free will, I am still limited by my nature. Why? I have the nature of a human being. I can exercise my free will. All I want to exercise my free will, but I cannot transform myself into this table. I can't do it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I use my free will, I cannot become this table because I don't have the nature of the table. I have the nature of a human being. In heaven, you will have free will, but you'll have a righteous nature, which means not that you won't want to sin. It means that you won't want to want to sin in heaven because you will have a righteous nature. So you have free will, but with a righteous nature, there will be no sin. Number four, what does it mean to rule the new earth with Christ? There's a lot of talk about ruling with Christ, reigning with Christ, uh, being given crowns and authority and prizes when we get to heaven. What is that all about? What, what does it mean to rule with Christ on the new earth? Well, let me explain it like this. God has a family business. God's family business is running the universe. God created the whole universe, all the planets, all the stars, earth, and everything in earth. That's his business. He created it all, and his job is to manage it and run it. We're God's children, which means one day we're going to help God, and we're helping him now run the family business. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. When God created Adam and Eve, if you go back to the book of Genesis, what did he give Adam and Eve? He said, you are the king and queen of earth. He, 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 the way he said it, he said, you have dominion over earth. Meaning Adam and Eve were the very first king and queen on planet earth. They were, they were the king and queen on planet earth. Satan tricked them. They sinned. They lost that to Satan. Satan now is the Lord over earth. Jesus is not the Lord over earth. 
If Jesus was the Lord over earth, I wouldn't serve him because he's doing a pretty terrible job. I mean, watch the news. I mean, there's corruption, there's disease, there's violence, there's all sorts of crazy things going on. Satan is the Lord over earth. Jesus is the Lord over us. And the more we allow Jesus to be the Lord over us, the more we can make a change on earth. But again, Adam and Eve were the first king and queen over earth. They lost that to Satan. Jesus died. He took the keys, dominion, and authority back. Jesus is now the future king over earth. Who's the queen? His bride. Who's his bride? The body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Those of us that have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, we are his bride. We are the body of Christ. We will rule with him for all of eternity. Revelations 19, verse 16. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, let me ask a question. If he's the big K king, who's the little K kings? If he's the big L Lord, who are the little L Lords? That's us. That's us. We are the little K kings and the little L Lords. God is going to give us jobs and assignments and authority, and we'll be kings and lords over the earth and over cities and parks and gardens and zoos and and, and, and nations and all different things. God is going to reward us and give us rulership. He's the big K. We're the little K. He's the big L. We're the little L. But it says there's going to be many kings and many lords, or it wouldn't make those words plural. So it starts to make sense. When you start tying Scripture together, it begins to make more sense. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we endure hardship, we will reign with Him. Now, why is this such a foreign and hard concept for us to get? Well, I'll tell you, the curse of sin. See, when you think of a king today, think about it like this. You take a king today and you add the curse of sin to it, what do you get? A dictator, a tyrant, an oppressor. That's what happens when you take a king or a lord and you add the curse of sin. But you got to remember, there's no curse of sin on the new earth. Kings on the new earth won't be tyrants. They won't be dictators. They won't oppress people. Lords on the new earth aren't going to be tyrants, dictators, oppress people. You have to understand biblical leadership. See, in the Bible, Jesus says, if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a servant. So why does God give us authority on the new earth and titles of kings and lords and and jobs and assignments so that we can serve? That's what it's all about. God wants servants. God wants people who will serve and care, and it'll be perfect harmony and peace because there's no curse of sin. Luke 19, 17, Jesus said, well done, the king explained. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you. So now you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. Now, I know this is a parable, but the parables Jesus taught was to illustrate the kingdom, the kingdom, what the kingdom is going to be like. So I believe he's, he's giving us a taste of what it's going to be like when we're faithful on earth. And I'm not talking about your life before you accepted Christ. Everything before you accepted Christ is covered. It's forgiven. But now that you accept Christ, you need to understand God's keeping score. It has nothing to do with you getting into heaven. It has everything to do with you being rewarded in heaven. That's what Revelations chapter 2 and 3 are dealing with the seven churches. God's keeping score. He's watching the way you run your race. Your life counts on earth. 
Your life counts. He's watching you. He's keeping score. And he's going to reward you on the new earth based on your faithfulness on this earth. Based on the way you run your race on this earth. Paul says in his kind of theology 101 lesson to the church of Corinth, and and he speaks of this as common knowledge in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world or, or rule the world? Verse 3, don't you realize that we will judge angels? Now, that's not happening right now. He's talking about the future. He's talking about the new earth. So, so here's the question. Should we want to rule? I mean, it sounds kind of like, you know, arrogant or, or selfish ambition to want to rule, to want to be a king, to want to be a lord. That doesn't sound very Christ-like. Well, let me explain it like this. Heaven is God's idea, not ours. It's his idea. And we are part of God's family. Ruling the universe is simply the family business. So to to want no part of the family business means you want no part of God himself. That's what that means. Because the super spiritual answer is to say, well, I don't want to rule. I just, I just, you know, just want to worship God all day. The spiritual answer is to say, you know what? I just want to be a part of whatever God's a part of. If God's a part of it, then I want to be a part. As his child, as his heir, as his son or daughter, I just want to take my place in the family business and make a difference and contribute to the whole and do the assignment God's given me to do. So what you need to get about the new earth is the new earth is not going to be a democracy. It's not going to be a majority rule. Everybody will be given a role, and that role will fulfill them, and that role will contribute to the whole. And nobody is going to feel worthless or insignificant about the role you've been given. But understand, there will be a social hierarchy in heaven, but there will not be a relational hierarchy. Everybody will equal, everybody will have equal access to the Father, to the throne, to the Jerusalem. You'll you'll have all the benefits and opportunities everyone else has, but we'll be given different assignments based on our faithfulness after you surrender your life to Jesus Christ here on earth. Because the moment you surrender your life to Christ, God starts keeping score and you will stand in what the Bible calls the judgment of works. For those that don't know Christ, you'll stand at the great throne judgment, and the Bible says anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the second death, the lake of fire, but those whose name are found in the book of life will not stand at the great white throne, but we will stand at a judgment of works where we will be rewarded based on what we did with our Christianity. See, Christianity is a free gift of God. God gives you that gift because of the blood of Jesus Christ. What you do with it after you receive it determines the reward system in heaven. Now, if you run the race and you lose, you're not going to be prevented from going to heaven. You're just not going to be rewarded when you get there. So let's make it clear. God is a God of grace. Getting to heaven is the free gift of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, not about you being a good person. But once you receive that free gift, what you do with it determines how you will be rewarded in the new earth. So does that, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, let's jump to number five in closing. What is the greatest glory of heaven? What is the greatest, what will be the greatest thing about heaven. You know, over the four weeks, we talked a lot about how amazing, how wonderful, how incredible it's going to be. And and, and there's people who get real hyper-spiritual about it, and they could say, well, don't focus on the gift. Focus on the giver. Don't talk about how wonderful heaven, who cares about heaven? Let's just focus on the creator, on the giver. But that actually does a disservice to God. 
Because as any parent knows, when you give a gift to your child, you want the child to enjoy the gift. You you don't want them to forget about you, but you want them to enjoy the gift. And the more they enjoy the gift, the more joy it brings you and the closer you become with that child. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment... See, God doesn't want you to endure and grudge through life with no joy. God wants to give you things for your enjoyment so that you can enjoy the gifts of God. Now, here's the problem. Under the curse of sin, we as human beings have a nasty problem, and it's we make idols out of the gift. We begin to worship the gift and not the giver. But again, remember, there's no curse of sin on the new earth. You won't have the ability to do that. You'll be able to enjoy all the gifts God gives you without turning any of them into idols, but still worshiping the giver. I love uh, the way Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 4.4, since everything God created is good. You know, God created it all. God gave us the ability to play and create and invent and sports and uh, athletics and arts and everything. All of it was good. All of that comes from God. Now, yeah, we take things and pervert it and warp it under the curse of sin, but God gave us all of those gifts. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. That's the key. That's the key, is thanking Him for all the gifts of your life. So let me explain it like this. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but surfing, we got a lot of surfers in our church, surfing can actually bring you closer to God. It absolutely can. If, if you'll enjoy it when you get to do it, and if you'll recognize where it came from and thank him for it, it'll actually, golf will bring you closer to God. Going out on a date with your wife can bring you closer to God. Spending a day with your children can bring you closer to God. If you recognize where those gifts came from, thank him for it, those things will actually draw you closer to the Father. Because he gave them to you for your enjoyment. He wants you to enjoy them. He just doesn't want you to forget him in the process. So next time you're out surfing, just take a moment and say, God, there's so many people in America who don't live by an ocean, who can't do this every day. There's so many people who physically don't have the physical strength of the body to be able to do this right now. I'm not here because of me today. I'm here because of you. You bless me. You're the reason I have the physical ability to do this. You're the reason I live in this area of the country. It's all from you. God, I just want to thank you. I just want to, I want to, I want to give you all the glory for, for this gift right now. And if you'll surf like that, you'll love surfing even more. You'll get more out of it and it'll actually bring you closer to God. Does that make sense? See, it's amazing. God's a good God. But what's the, what's the greatest glory of heaven? Yes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. It's, it, it's awesome to think about it. But the greatest glory of heaven is going to be his presence. Being in the presence of God, there's nothing that's going to be more powerful than being in his presence. Because God's greatest gift to us was and always will be himself. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. God will be with us, living with us, walking with us. That's the greatest glory of heaven. Heaven is going to be wonderful and amazing, but going to heaven without God would be like trying to go on a honeymoon without your bride. No matter how beautiful it was, it's not going to be the same if your bride doesn't go with you. 
That's what makes the honeymoon special. The greatest part of God is his presence. And what's even more incredible than that is being able to see his face. I know this is hard for for human beings to to fully comprehend, and, and I don't expect you to fully get this today. I hope that you would take it and meditate on it a little bit because you'll never truly grasp it all till you get there, but you can begin meditating on today. The greatest experience of life will be to see the face of God. John Donne, a famous theologian, wrote, I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Revelations 21.4, and they will see his face. We're going to be able to see the face of our creator, our loving father, to be able to look upon him. Why is that such a big deal? Well, you got to understand, all throughout the Bible, they couldn't look at God. They couldn't see him. If, if you as a human being today, under the condition you're in, looked at the face of God, it would destroy you. It would literally disintegrate your body. If you saw God's face in your current condition, it would disintegrate your body. It is impossible. Moses saw just the backside of God hiding behind a rock, and he glowed like a neon sign for over a month and freaked everyone out around him. Imagine what would happen if he would have saw God's face. He would have been dead. He would have literally been disintegrated. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose, but you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. So how do we see God? Hebrews 12, 14, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. So holiness is the key. How do we become holy? The blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing that can make you holy today is the blood of Jesus Christ. You can work the rest of your life trying to be a good person. It won't work. You'll you'll never be good enough. And not only will we see God's face and we'll live, but here's something that'll be really hard for you to fully comprehend, but but I pray that you'd meditate on this. You will likely wonder if you have ever lived before you saw his face. Seeing the face of God is going to be the most amazing, incredible, and those words don't even do justice to it. Seeing the face of God will be such an experience that you'll wonder if you ever lived up until that point. Like if you really ever lived, if you really understood life at all up until that point, that's where life will really begin is seeing the face of God. Job 19, 25, Job says, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. And I am overwhelmed at that thought. Why is it so hard for us to understand this will be the greatest joy of heaven to be able to see the face of God? See, sadly, for so many of us today, that's not at the top of our list on heaven. But it should be. If you understood what it meant to look into the face of God, that would be your highest aspiration. 
See, the greatest attraction of the Garden of Eden was simply Adam and Eve getting to live with God, walk with God, eat with God, commune with God. The greatest loss due to sin was we lost the ability to cohabitate with God. But that's going to be restored through the new earth. You know, in, in a series like this, one of the dangers of this series is when you teach on heaven, you talk about the new earth and heaven, here's, here's the danger, and I don't want anyone to, to be caught in this. The danger is, if, if you ask the average American today, where do you go when you die? The average American will say heaven. People automatically assume heaven is the default location. Most people today, the, the research is out, most people today believe heaven is the default location. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't teach that. Heaven is not our default location. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That is our default. Jesus said it like this, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many, many people there are that find it. Jesus said, narrow, narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there are that find it. And that's not his desire. It's not his will because the Bible says his desire and will is that all people find it. But the reality is there there are few that are going to find it. And so the question today to you is, are you one of the few? How, How do you know if you're one of the few or not? How do you really know if you're one of the few? Well, You know, we talked about one-year Bible earlier. One of the chapters we read today in the one-year Bible was John chapter 10. I read this this morning, and I just really felt like I needed to share this with you in closing today. John chapter 10, verse 7, it says, Jesus explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. There's one gate to the new earth, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the only gate that you can be saved under. If you try to get to God through any other gate, it doesn't work. There's one gate, Jesus. He is the gate, and only through him will you find life. I am the gate. Anybody that comes through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and they'll find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose, my desire for your life, Jesus says, is to give them a rich, satisfying life. That's God's plan, heart, and desire for you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. What's he talking about? The cross. The cross is where he sacrificed his life for the sheep, for us. He bled and he died. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. He gives his life voluntarily for you. He lays it down. He becomes the gate, the only gate. 
And again, I know so many people today that they, they just like to say, well, it's just about being a good person. You just need to be a good person. You know, if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. They were a good person. They went to heaven. Just, just be good. How ridiculous is that logic? Just think about that with a little bit of common sense for a moment. Goodness. What's good? How do you define it? If it's about goodness, there's got to be a cutoff line somewhere, shouldn't there? I mean, if, if goodness is, is the gate that gets you to heaven, if, if goodness is the gate that you walk through, where's the cutoff line? Because there's a spectrum of good and there's a spectrum of bad, and there's a line somewhere on that spectrum, and that line has to be the cutoff if your logic of goodness makes sense. So what's the line? Is it a million good works? Is it a million good words? Let's just say it's a million for sake of argument. You mean to tell me the guy that gets to 999,999 good works is now going to go to hell because he missed it by one? That's what your logic is saying. That's what your logic is saying. He's now going to go to hell for all of eternity because he missed it by one good work. So you got to play out the logic of, uh, of the rationale about being a good person. It's not about being a good person. None of us will ever be good. The gate of goodness will not get you to heaven. One gate will get you to heaven. That's Jesus Christ, God's son. And you don't get Jesus by being a good person. That's religion. You can get a lot of religion by trying to be good, but you won't get Jesus by trying to be good. You get Jesus by surrendering your life to him. He paid the price for you. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's not about your behavior. He did all the work on the cross. All you have to do today is receive it by surrendering your life to him. That's how it works. That's the gate. Jesus Christ is the gate. And so what I want to do in closing is I just want to invite, if there's anybody here today that needs to walk through that gate today, the way you walk through that gate is you say a very simple prayer of surrendering your life to him. It's not, you know, they're, they're not, you know, not a bunch of steps you have to take and anything you have to earn or anything you have to do. It's simply you surrender your life to him. You just give him your life. That's the gate. It's not about your works or your effort. It's about giving him your life. Now, after you give him your life, if you want to earn some rewards in heaven, then yeah, you you need to do something with your Christianity. And he'll give you the power to do it. So it's not that you have to do it on your own. He'll give you the power to do it. But whether you do or you don't, it's not going to keep you out of heaven. Heaven is by his blood. He paid the price through his blood. And so if, if, if you need to make that decision today, either for the first time or you need to recommit, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to walk down to the front. You can pray this in your heart. You don't even need to say it out loud. God will hear your heart. But would everyone in here just close your eyes for a moment? Just close your eyes for a moment. Bow your heads for a moment. For the people that need to make this decision to have that moment between them and God. And if you want to join me in that simple prayer today with nobody looking around, with every eye closed, would you just slip up your hand and say, you know what, I need to join you in that prayer today. Just slip up your hand right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You can put your hands down. The prayer is very simple. In your heart, in your own words, would you just say to God, God, today I surrender my life to you and I ask you to take first place. 
the second part of that prayer is, God, will you forgive me? And the beautiful thing is he'll absolutely say yes, but you have to ask. You have to ask. And he'll cover you, past, present, future. He'll pay for it all right now. He'll pay for all the sins you've committed up to this point, and he'll pay for all the sins you'll ever commit if you'll simply ask right now for his forgiveness. Say, God, will you forgive me? And then the last part of the prayer is gratefulness. I just want you to say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you that I even understand what that word save now means, that I had a default location and it wasn't good. And you've saved me from my default location. You've now given me a different destination, a destination with you. Thank you. You can look up for just a moment. Those of you that prayed with me today, I want to encourage you to do one more thing on your own. On the connection card, there's two boxes. One says I'm committing my life to Christ. One says I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. If you made either decision today, I want to encourage you to check one of those boxes, drop it off one of the tithing offering boxes as you leave. And we want to pray for you. We want to support you in the greatest decision you'll ever make. We also have these booklets outside at our information table. It says, now what? This is a great question. Today I put God first in my life. Now what? What do I do next? Take the next seven days, read one chapter a day for seven days, and it'll walk you through the next steps. And then lastly, if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, I can't encourage you enough to take a Bible today. We have plenty of Bibles. We give hundreds of them away every year. This is the most important thing we do as a church is get God's Word into people's hands. This book is living, breathing. It'll breathe life into you. I can't intellectually explain that one to you. Uh, all I can tell you is you got to experience it. But when you read this and you allow God's Spirit to, to help you, it literally breathes life inside of you. So I encourage you to read this every day. Our, our, our one-year Bible reading plan is on the table outside. Join us today and, and just jump in whatever day we're on. Start today with whatever day we're on. Don't start at the beginning. Just start today and read through the Bible with us. We'll do it every year. And so you'll, whatever you miss for the first few months this year, you'll catch up next year. You know, but, but if you start today, you'll read through the Bible in 365 days. Stand with me as we close today. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray for everyone here, God. I thank you for your word that paints a picture of where we're going so that we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be afraid. We can actually be excited and live in anticipation for it because we know how wonderful and amazing it's going to be. And God, I pray that you would just really impress upon us how important it is that we run the race now well. You know, the, Lord, that's why we do our Discover 301 class, God, so that we can find out what our gifts are what our spiritual gifts are, what our, what our leadership abilities and talents are so that we can give them back to you and use them to serve in your kingdom. We thank you, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, have a great week, everyone. We're glad to have you today. In my wrestling, in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me Troubled sea, whoa, you are the peace in my trouble.